Let's get started. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, we're catching that final verse, verse 29. You know, one of the things we need to understand about Solomon is he was a wise man. Okay, that's not telling you anything that you don't already know. Um, But one of the things we need to understand is even in all of his wisdom, he still recognized his own limitations in understanding God's plan fully on this earth. And, you know, sometimes part of being wise is, is recognizing that you don't know something. And, and I think we've met people like that, that they would actually take like a step up in wisdom if they just admitted that they might not know something. Just, just they might be wrong. They might not have it Altogether, well, Solomon gets to this point in his investigation where he, he recognizes that, you know, he, he doesn't quite have it all together, okay? He doesn't quite have it all together, but he is trying to tell us what he has found. And um, one of the things that we see, too, and we're going we're to see, especially in verse 29 today, is you and I have to be guarded against what's going to come natural to us. And what I mean by that is this, man has got this innate innate, inbred desire to scheme rather than trust God. We, we, just, we just naturally go to scheming. We're just a bunch of schemers. And, and that's our natural bent in life is we start to scheme and scheme and scheme. And what we're going to see is when we talk about scheming, the word that Solomon uses is he's saying you're creating defense mechanisms. You're, you're creating a, a self-protection and, you know, we are a, a, a society that is like DIY on steroids, right? It doesn't matter what you want to DIY, do it yourself, right? That's the acronym for that. We DIY our health. Tell me you haven't looked on Google and compared your symptoms to some crazy, wild, tropical African disease that nobody ever has. You're like, I got, man, there's 10 symptoms. I got five of them. I must have the... Ooga booga virus or whatever, you know? And, and we do that stuff with our health. We, we do that with our relationships. We do that with home repair. We do that with car repair. We do that with everything. I was on this morning trying to format a, a Microsoft Word document. And I went to my buddy Google and Google helped me out, right? So we do this all of the time. We, we go to scheming. We can't figure something out. Something doesn't make sense. We go to scheming instead of trusting the Lord. And one of the things that we're going to see in this morning's section is one area that we scheme often is in the area of human authority, especially as it relates to the civil government. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so let's turn with me in verse 29. And Solomon writes this, Truly, this only I have found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You remember last week, Solomon had told us that he had done all this incredible investigation. He gave us his methodology. He said he checked every angle. And then he gets to the end of chapter 7, starting in verse 26 to the end. And he uses this word, found or find, seven times. Let me tell you, I've done this thorough investigation. Let me tell you what I've found. I've found this. I've found this. I haven't found this. I've found this. We have the last use of it right here in verse 29, something that he has found. And what has he found? Well, he says that 
God made man upright. Now, what he's not saying, we know from the scripture, there's consistency in scripture. He's not saying that, that he made man sinless. I mean, we should, we should know that. In fact, even if we just back to, to 7 verse 20, he said this, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So he's not saying that God created man sinless. I mean, we got Romans 3.23, right? All is sin. Uh, Psalm 51.5, I was, uh, behold, I, I was shapen in sin. My, in, in iniquity, my mother conceived me, right? So he's not saying that mankind is sinless. What does he mean by upright? Well, what he means is this. God has given men the ability and the means to walk straight, to walk in a way that's not crooked, to walk level and not bumpy. What does that mean exactly? Well, it, it means this, that if mankind will simply buy into what Solomon is teaching right here, respond consistently in their daily lives to not only the Lord, but also his viewpoint, life's not going to be perfect, but it can be more enjoyable. That, that we can actually experience abundant life. That, that the roads that we have on in, in our lives don't have to be as bumpy. They don't have to be as crooked, right? He's, he's created us in such a way that we can find life's full enjoyment. That doesn't mean things are always going to go right. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials. But it means that we can respond to those in a way that we maximize the effects. That's what I believe he's saying here. And, you know, life is full of enjoyment only when there's one ingredient. One ingredient cannot be missing. Anybody ever tried to bake a cake without eggs? Well, DIY. You can go online and figure out. If you don't have eggs, you can bake a cake without eggs now. Seriously. But in the old days, you would never bake a cake without eggs. In fact, the reason that sometimes you can get away with it now is because some of the, the functions of an egg, which is designed to hold things together, right, they actually put in baking mixes now. Probably some chemical they created in a lab somewhere, and now it kind of does the function of an egg. But, but in all reality, when you bake a cake without eggs, you can have all the ingredients in there, but it won't do what it's supposed to do. And you know, the key ingredient to fully enjoying life is fellowship with the Lord. That's, that's it. I, I don't care how much sugar you put in the, in the batter. I don't care how much flour you throw in there. If you don't have fellowship with the Lord tossed in there, you cannot fully enjoy life. And see, one of the things that he's going to say is that mankind, uh, unlike Solomon, we're searching and we're scheming and we're seeking out things in the wrong area in this area, this whole topic of enjoying life to the fullest. And what he's going to say is that man, instead of understanding how they're created, instead of going back to verse 29, that God has made upright, that, that God has made man upright, that he's put him in a position to fully enjoy life, unbumpify his roads, uncrookify his paths, and, and to give him full enjoyment in life, man does something they seek out many schemes. And this word seek out, again, emphasizes a diligent search. We don't just subtly reject the Lord and his viewpoint. We aggressively, consistently, naturally reject the Lord and his viewpoint, and we seek out schemes. We seek out our own solutions. And in this case, mankind is not diligently investigating wisdom as Solomon was. They're diligently and passionately seeking out 
many schemes. And, you know, mankind, it's, it's unfortunate, but we just have this natural tendency to constantly, persistently look for things, search for things, search for ways not to trust the Lord. We, we just naturally bend that way. And you know what? It shows up in areas that we least expect it. And that's, I think, where it's kind of the lead into the passage today. Because one of those areas that it shows up that we least expect is, is, is how we respond to civil government. How we respond to, which is not in this passage, but how we respond to any authority in our lives. And this is why I encourage young people. You don't have to agree with everything your parents do. You don't have to say that everything they do is perfect. You don't have to check your mind at the door. You can disagree with your parents. But the point is this. God has given you your parents for a reason and authority over you. You are to submit and obey your parents as long as they're not asking you to do something unbiblical. And you start training yourself now. You start training yourself now. Because if you don't train yourself now, then it's going to spill into all of these other areas in life. And I'm telling you, We've got, not only do we have a country full of rebels, we've got a church full of rebels. And, I'm, and I think the church is not what it could be because of little foolish things like this. You know, there's only two paths in life. There's the path of the wise, there's the path of folly. What path are you on? You're going to let getting upset at the civil government knock you out of fellowship with the Lord so that you're baking cakes with no eggs and slapping that mess on the table? of your Christian life. And that's exactly what many people do. We do that exactly that way. We, we, we get caught up and wrapped around the axle of something we don't need to get wrapped around the axle with. And it, all it does is take us out of fellowship with the Lord. It makes you less for Jesus Christ than what you could be. It makes our church less for Jesus Christ than what it could be. Because if all your energy and activity is, is rebelling against the government, what, where's the gospel and all that? Where's disciple making and all that? Where's individually heart from a heart level responding to the Lord and all that? We get so irritated and agitated. And at the end of the day, what do you have to show for it? Maybe a cow patty. It's about what it's, what it's worth. Paul called it dung. So, I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here. And so that's the thing. If, if we're constantly seeking out schemes, it's going to spill into other areas in life. And I think human government is one of those areas it spills into this rebel. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, but schemes here refers to a dis, uh, defensive siege machine. They're not offensive devices. They're defensive structures. They were, they were used on towers and walls. They would put screens up to, to protect from archers and stone throwers. They were seeking out their own Defenses, And so when we look at it, we're talking about self-reliant, self-produced mechanism to protect ourselves against the unpredictability in life. We don't like what the government's doing. They're not doing anything unbiblical, but we don't like it. So thus, we're going to seek out our own schemes to make our life a little bit easier. See how that that works? It it sounds, I mean, quite frankly, it sounds American, (laughs) but it doesn't mean it's biblical. That's the contrast. It sounds American, but it doesn't mean necessarily it's biblical. In fact, the, the point's not that people are turning aside to sin. That's not the point at all. It's that they fail to understand that God has a scheme of things, that God has a way that he's designed things to function, and he has a way that he wants us to respond to his sovereign control of the universe, including civil government. 
including when we don't agree with things that civil government does. You know, and instead of trusting the Lord, walking in the fear of him, we just naturally gravitate toward trusting ourselves. We trust our own concoctions. We scheme out defensive mechanisms, and we just live life in a total self-protection oriented mindset. And the problem with that is when you self-protect, you are kicking somebody out of a role that wants to be there for you. God wants to protect you. God wants to lead you. God wants to be the one out front. And when you go and I go to these schemes, we are kicking him out of his place and saying, you know what, God, I got it. You can take a rest with me, God. Go help somebody else that really needs you. What an arrogant and proud way to think. And yet many of us, we slide right into that kind of thinking. We don't realize that we're saying that, but that's exactly how we're thinking. And and to further prove his point on why being wise is better, he goes to verse 1 in chapter 8, and he asks a couple rhetorical questions. The first one, uh, let's read the verse first, and we'll look at the first one. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. And so here's our first rhetorical question. Who's like a, a wise man? Basically, the idea is that wise people are head over heels above everybody else. They, they're on the right path. They've got the ability, when they're, when they're walking in the fear of the Lord, which is how you gain wisdom, that's the very definition of gaining wisdom, you're considering divine perspective in everything that happens in your life. You just head over heels above everybody else. You're a step ahead in enjoying life. And it's, the rhetorical question it kind of implies the, the term, there's nobody like the wise man. He's, he's really out there. He's really got it together. He's the one that's got it figured out. Not the guy that's getting revved up about uh, things that they shouldn't get revved up about. These schemes that they're, they're going after and seeking. And so a wise man, in contrast to a foolish, doesn't seek out schemes. Doesn't seek out these methods of self-protection. He walks in the fear of the Lord. He's trusting the Lord to protect him. He's trusting the Lord to guide his society. And you know what a wise person is looking for? It's what 1 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through about 5, Paul says. What do you, what do you pray for? What, what do you pray for in a society? You pray for a quiet and peaceable life. You pray that your government will provide you a quiet and peaceable life. Why? So that people will trust Christ and people will grow spiritually. That's what we're looking for in a government. Punish wrongdoers and provide us an opportunity to worship the Lord freely. That's exactly what we're looking for. And a wise man's not seeking to make that happen on their own. And you know, rhetorical question number two, who knows the interpretation of a thing? Again, this implies the statement that no one knows the interpretation of a thing except a wise man. When we look at interpretation, it means the explanation or clarification of a statement, and uh, the thing here is, is a statement. It's a message. It's some form of communication that he's talking about. And so, but the very definition of wisdom is what? Taking information and knowing what it means, knowing how to apply it, knowing where to put it in life. And see, only wise people can do this. People who are seeking and searching and get their magnifying glass out for other schemes outside of the scheme and the purpose and plan of God are not going to, don't fall into this category. They fall into the opposite category. And I think that's the thing we've got to understand. Either you're on the path of wisdom or you're on the path of folly. 
You can't be on any, there's no other path. It's a, it's a fork in a road. It requires a decision. It requires volitional choice to walk by faith. And if you're not, if you don't know that you're walking by faith or whether or not you are, you're probably not because it takes intentional focus. It takes an intentional reliance upon the word of God, the promises of God, the character of God, the person of Jesus Christ, everything that he's put together and the resources that you possess in Christ as a believer. If you're not actively relying upon that, you're walking the path of folly. You're carnal. That's, the scripture only allows for two paths. So it's, there's, no, there's no neutral. We, we have to get out of our mind. There's no neutral. We need to be actively enjoying fellowship with the Lord. That is the key to abundant life. And so the wise person has a couple of benefits. We see this in verse 1. Two stated benefits. The first one, it, it says that, he, that wisdom makes his face shine. Shine means to give light, to light up, maybe is a good way to describe this. And this describes the countenance of a wise man. And what's interesting about the verb, it's in an imperfect aspect. It means it's an ongoing countenance. A wise person's face is continually lit up, okay? Their countenance is one of enjoyment. Why? Because they can assess life. They keep the main thing the main thing. They recognize circumstances as an overarching, fitting in the plan of God. They recognize trials, not that God hates me, but that God loves me and he wants to see me through this, grow me spiritually, add to my character so that when I hit the next trial that may be a little bit more difficult, I can respond to that in a way that brings him honor and glory too. And this is what we're talking about. The wise person thinks this way. And so they have this brightness, this, this hope, this, this confident expectation that God has got this under control. God can take it. God can do it. I don't have to scheme for myself, because God's going to take care of it. I can trust him. And that's the mindset. They're not just moping around in life, looking for the next glass of sweet tea and a a lawn chair, as if that is the blessing of God. No, the blessing of God is enjoying fellowship no matter where you're at. No matter if you're in Georgia, Texas, or, you know, goodness gracious, Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, you can enjoy the Lord anywhere in the country, and in the world. This is what we're talking about here. This is the benefits of wisdom. Second benefit, verse one. It says the sternness of his face is changed. And this is, this is one of those verses where you gotta read it a couple times, I think, because some people say, oh, well, wise people are more angry. You know, it's kinda, it kind of looks that way, right? It's like, oh, they get more angry. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. In fact, the, the word itself means strength, power, might. Um, so it's a condition where one can exert grace, great force, and this, but the opposite of that is they can withstand great force. And I think that kind of fits the context a little bit more. And they can withstand great force. Why? Because they have the ability to do what's desired, intended, or necessary. They have this, what I would say, natural stick to the ability to see matters all the way through. In fact, possessing wisdom gives the person this, the, the wherewithal just to pursue the Lord and the truth regardless of how they feel, regardless of what they see as it relates to making decisions. In other words, this is a person that you can count on because they're principled and they're walking in fellowship with the Lord. You know exactly what decision they're going to make. You know exactly which direction they're going to lean 
because they have a, a sternness or a, a toughness or a, an ability to withstand lots of bumps and bruises from lots of different angles and come out on the other side still thinking biblically. This is, I believe, what we're talking about here. There, you know, there's an old phrase, I, some may not even be familiar with it, but steely-eyed, you know, locked in. This is, this is a person who's locked in on the Lord, and they are 100% bought in to this concept that they need to walk by faith, they need to trust the Lord, they need to take his viewpoint on things. They are 100% bought in. You know, it reminds me of uh, the disciples. I think it was, was it Peter? Who, who Jesus, he looks away, and many of the disciples were leaving him. Not the 12, but many of the other disciples were leaving him. And he looks at the 12, he says, are you going to leave me also? You remember what Peter said? Where are we going to go, Lord? <laughs> you have the words of life. Where else are we going to turn? You know, and until we come to that point in our Christian life, we'll be schemers. All we're going to look for is schemes. All we're going to look for is self-reliance strategies. Are you at the point where you know in the, in the pit of your gut that there's nowhere else to go but Jesus Christ? It sounds like a desperate situation. It is. But it's a good desperate. That's, that's where you want to be. That's what you want to be convinced of. If you're in a marriage this morning in order to fulfill your God-ordained role in your marriage, you need Jesus Christ, period. If you have kids in your life, whether they're at home or they're grown, to be a good parent, you need Jesus Christ, period. There's nowhere else to go. Stay out of the Christian bookstore. Stay out of the top 10 aisle. You need Jesus Christ. And I say that facetiously. I'm sure there's helpful books that point you to Jesus Christ. But the point is this. You have everything you, put, you need, you possess already in Jesus Christ. And we've got to get to the point where we say, you know what? I'm bought in. That's right. Where am I going to go? I got nowhere else to go. June me, Lord. It's, that's it. That's all I got. I got you. You know, that's a good place to be. And so this is somebody, these benefits of wisdom help us that. Now, one of the things that a wise man is going to realize as we get into this area now regarding civil government is a wise man is going to recognize that I don't need to defend myself because I've got God who wants to avenge me, a la the end of Romans 12, the beginning of Romans 13. And I know that's been over a year. I looked it up over a year since we've been in that section. But it's the same concept that we see here. But the point is this. It's not that civil government is going to be perfect. They are not going to be perfect. I'm surprised there wasn't like 40 amens on that thing. Because we see that on a daily basis in our government. And by the way, our government is 10 times less corrupt than most of the governments around the world. Think about that one for a little bit. That's frightening. I was in Liberia one time and I was walking down the street and I was with my friend and he said, hey, I want you to meet the only non-corrupt judge in the entire nation of Liberia. And I was like, what? Are you kidding? I thought he was joking. He's serious. He was serious. One judge, according to him, now I'm not saying he had all knowledge, but the point was this, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of places. So we've got it here too. I, I understand that. But a wise person will recognize that the government is an agent. It's a mechanism. It's a tool in God's hand to avenge wrongs done to us. Typically, their role is to protect the citizen and to 
carry out execution of wrath or justice on those who break the law. That's a good thing. A wise person recognizes that overarching goal of God. And so as we get into verses 2 and 3, let's read it. It says, I say, this is Solomon speaking, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. And so Solomon's now has got some instructions as it relates to civil government. The very first thing he says, we've got to We've got to kind of take this in. Now, I realize that when Solomon's writing, he's writing in terms of a monarchy, right? We don't, we don't live in a monarchy. And so what we're trying to do is come to this passage and, and understand the, the original message to the original audience, but also take any kind of principles that we can apply. And how do we know we can apply principles? Well, if the same principle is taught in the New Testament, then it's pretty clear we can take this principle with us into our day. And so the very first thing though, very, I think we've got to understand this is this word keep. It's very important. It says, keep the King's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. The word keep means to guard, to watch, to observe, or you see it in blue italics, to pay attention closely to. The idea is that we are going to value what our leaders say. When they have a communication, in fact, this word commandment, it's not really even a commandment. It's not, we're not saying what ends up in law. We're not saying that at all. We're saying this is a communication. This could be a commandment. It could be a decree. It could be a a piece of legislation. It could be an executive order, but it doesn't have to even go that far. We've got to understand this, that when, when our leaders speak, it could be their desires, it could be even their unspoken request. It could even be something, and I don't want to hit too close to home here, but it could even be like a recommendation. We, we hear about recommendations a lot during COVID-19, right? So the idea is that we're going to take these things in and we're going to actually value what they say. We're going to actually value and pay close attention to. And, and Solomon's going to give a reason to his listeners. In fact, he, he, he addresses that reason with the word for. You see that in verse uh, two, why should you keep the king's commandment? Well, I'm sorry, it's, it's down in, um, yeah, yeah, it's in verse two. I got, I got, my mind got off there. Um, so it's right there, for the sake of your oath to God. So when, you, when you're valuing and paying close attention, uh, or when they were to their civic leaders, they were valuing the words of Solomon, their king. The reader would be keeping their sworn oath or contractual promise to God. That's what this idea of oath means. It's a sworn statement. It's a contractual promise to God. So again, kind of inserting ourselves back in history culturally, what was this talking? What was their oath? What was the nation of Israel's oath? Well, I think it's, it's recorded well in 1 Samuel 8. And turn with me there. I'm going to read. I want to read that, or you can just listen to me read. 1 Samuel 8, verse 10 through 22. You know the story. The people of Israel have come to Samuel and said, hey, we want a human king. Samuel's like, ah, you know, God wants to give you a human king, just doesn't want to give it to you now. And they said, no, nah, no, nah, give us one. And so the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel says, this is what God says is going to happen if I give you a human king. You would expect when he gets done with the list, they're like, ah, no, 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 never mind. We'll trust the Lord. We'll just wait on his timing. They don't do that. They said, no, nah, no, nah, give us a king. But look at this. This agreement, this covenant, this oath that the nation agrees to. Look at verse 10 of 1 Samuel 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. 
And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. By the way, see if any of this sounds familiar with civil government in general. This is exactly what civil government does. Um, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground, reap his harvest, some to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, give them to, to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain, can anyone say taxes, uh, and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep. Can anyone say more taxes? And you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Then look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now that's a sermon in itself right there. That, that's incredible that they would respond that way. But go, go on in verse 21. Samuel heard all the words of the people. Uh, he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everybody go to his city. Or I think he probably said, just get out of my sight for a while. <laughs> you guys are nuts. But they, they agreed to this. They understood that the king would, would have, uh, in, in a sense, power over them. And God wanted that king in the person of the Messiah. That's who he wanted to give them. Uh, a king that would rule in justice and equity. And, and, a, and a king that would defend them. And a king that would establish uh, a kingdom that was perfect in terms of how it was executed. That's what God wanted to give them. But they wanted a human king. And so this is, is I believe, the oath that, that Solomon is referring to here. What about us, though? And I think this is where we're trying to, to make the crossover to our day. Um, I think the obligation that Solomon gives to his audience can be summed up in one phrase. Submit to your governing authorities. And guess where we hear that? Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. And I want to just go there. I'm not going to reteach it. We don't have time this morning. But go back, go to Romans chapter 13 with me. And seriously, if you're interested in a much, you know, more detailed handling of the passage, it's on our YouTube channel, so you can check it out there if you're interested. But Romans 13, 1 through 5, let's just read through it. I just want to make a couple of comments. Romans 13, verse 1 through 5, which says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Again, we, we pointed this out as we went through Romans, but, but notice it's, it's not some souls, it's not when you feel like it, it's every soul be subject to the governing authorities. In other words, put yourself under their authority. You have to make a choice to do that. That's a volitional choice. Why should you do it? Verse 1, for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That is a wise man's perspective on human government right there. God put it in place. Thus, if they are not telling me to do something unbiblical, I will yield. I will yield to them. I don't have to like it. Doesn't have to make sense. Doesn't mean I won't challenge it at the voter box. Doesn't mean I might not challenge it through legislation. Doesn't mean I might not call my congressman. Whatever legal avenue we have, go for it. 
But the point is this, in our hearts, we are yielding to it. We're not just making decisions to rebel. Why? Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. You're standing up against who you think is just human authorities, and yet you're standing against God. Not a good spot. (laughs) Not a good position to take. I think we would agree with that. Go on. I just want to make a couple more comments from verse 5, but let's read it through. For the rulers are not a terror to good, uh, to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. A very strong argument for Police forces, law enforcement, God-ordained right to punish lawbreakers. Now, I don't typically get political. Those of you that are here all the time, you know that. And I don't want to get too political this morning. But the point is this. There may be reforms needed in policing, but we do not need to do away with policing. That, that is a God-ordained mechanism to protect the, the average citizen that's going about their life And we need that. That's a societal help to restrain evil. And we need that. Verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject. Now, now notice this. Why should you be subject? He's going to give two reasons here. And this is the point I want us to see very clearly. You must be subject not only because of wrath. In other words, you might get spanked. You might get punished if you break the law. But to me, this is a big one for a believer in Jesus Christ but also for conscience' sake. And you know, what, you know what the conscience is, right? It's that mechanism in our head, divinely placed to do what? To help you recognize right from wrong. To help notify you when you're possibly out of fellowship with the Lord and you've done something sinful that might knock you out of fellowship with the Lord. You're saying the way that I respond to human government may impact my fellowship with the Lord? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Is it worth it? I don't think it's worth it. You may disagree. You may think it's really worth it. I don't think it's worth it. I would encourage you. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And, and go with me to 1 Peter. Let's just look at that. Uh, 1 Peter 2. I don't want you to see this, this New Testament teaching on the subject. Again, we're not handling it in a lot of detail this morning. But 1 Peter 2, verse 13. You're going to see a similar teaching. This time from the Apostle Peter. Therefore, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That word ordinance doesn't mean a command. It means every institution, every orderly institution that God has placed over you. That would be, in our country, president, governors, mayors, right? Any kind of authority structure that's been ordained and over you. We are to submit to how many? Every. Every ordinance, of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, and then he kind of goes on, or to governors as to those who are sent by him. For, again, what's the role of the government? The civil government? Punish evildoers. For the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 16, are you free? You are free. You, you do have liberty. Oh, they're taking away my liberty. They're taking away my freedom. Okay? You're still free. No one can take that away from you. You are free. 
You have been made free in Christ. You've got liberty. But look at what he says in verse 16. But be careful how you use your liberty. Because you can be really noisy and really obnoxious to the cause of Jesus Christ. And again, it's not worth it. It is not worth it. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago far trumps anything that's going on in our day. Far trumps in importance whether or not you and I get to exercise certain liberties for a temporary period in our history on this earth. And this is what we're going to see because in verse 16 it says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Which in this point is, is, I think, rebellion against the civil government. But as bondservants of God, notice how he ends verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. You see the balance there of even what we're seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God. Walk in dependence on God. Buy into his scheme. Don't start cranking out your own schemes. And as you do that, honor the king. Honor the civil government that's above you. And I think for many of us this morning, we need to answer some questions just uh, individually. This is between you and the Lord. This isn't between me and you. This isn't between this church and you. This is just an individual question for every believer sitting in this room. How do you primarily identify this morning? You know, my my son Tobin, uh, he's starting to grow out of this phase now, but when he was about five or six, I could tell you who who Tobin identified with. Spider-Man. Everywhere he ran, he had his, you know, he was shooting imaginary webs. He had face masks, you know, face like covers that that looked like Spider-Man. He had Spider-Man t-shirts. He had Spider-Man toys. He identified with Spider-Man. But you know what? He's he's growing up a little bit. He's not identifying with Spider-Man now. I don't know who he's identifying with at the present. But you know, the question for us as believers is how do you primarily identify? Do you identify as an American and then a Christian? I would say your, your priorities off. You're, you're not thinking biblically. Our identification should be a believer in Jesus Christ and then everything else is secondary. That's great. Be a citizen. I still get tears sometimes when the American flag, I'm not saying don't be a good citizen. I'm just saying, what's your primary mode of identification? Is it as a believer or is it as an American? Because if it's as an American, you're going to be just as vocal and obnoxious as the unsaved person next door to you. And, and what good is that doing for the church of Jesus Christ? I thought, I thought Jesus was into building his church, not building the United States of America or building some other country. Find that verse for me and then we can talk. But that's not there. Jesus Christ is building his church. That's the primary importance in his thinking. Why isn't, our, why isn't it our primary importance in our thinking? And for some of us, maybe it is. I'm not assuming that we're all off and going down the wrong path. But that's the challenge in our thinking that we need to talk about and need to think through. How do you identify yourself? Believer first or an American first? I think it's a fair question. Now, he goes on to give some additional instructions in verses 2 and 3. He says, don't be hasty, speaking uh, to to the audience, but don't be hasty to go from his presence, speaking of the king's presence. And the word hasty just means to be in a hurry, to do something in a swift manner. And the idea communicated is, is not to be swift to go and do 
whatever you want to do. Don't just be swift to just go do whatever you want to do, but rather stay. Make sure you, again, at the beginning of verse 2, value what the human government is saying because they are an entity put in place by God. There's maybe something there for you to hear and to listen to and to take into account. And um, the other thing that we might see because of how it's tied in with with verse 3, especially the last part of verse 3, it could represent not just an impolite exit, like you're just not listening, but that you're actually moving out quickly as a brash change of loyalty to the king. In other words, you're getting set up for rebellion, right? If, if I'm going to rebel against this king, I'm not going to sit around and listen to him. I'm going like, to make my way out of the room and go hang out with my buddies, and we're going to start this rebellion. And this is why um, in, verse th- in verse 3, you see that he says, do not take your stand for an evil thing. And then he says, for the king, he does whatever he pleases him. So to take your stand has the idea that you're presenting yourself to a superior. But in this case, what is he presenting himself to? Well, they're presenting themselves or they're standing with either an evil statement, an evil person, an evil communication, something that's in rebellion against the leader. That's who they're taking their stand with. Now, why should they not do this? Well, the reason for not rebelling against the king, notice that next phrase, for, again, that gives us uh, the reason. He goes on to explain, he does whatever pleases him which means that the king has ultimate authority. They can go to any length to squash any kind of coup. And we've seen that, you see that in history. Kings start to think that somebody's coming against them. They put it to to bed quickly, right? And we see that even in our own political realm, where if if certain political officials feel like people are ganging up against them, they start working behind the scenes to kind of put that down. And so verse four, where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? And and the idea is that when the king speaks, it it goes. Whatever the king says, it goes, period. That is very true in Solomon's culture. In fact, the word power here means supremacy, mastery, um, and it just pertained to this ultimate control. So that's very true in a monarchy. Obviously, in America, we have a balance of powers, but the idea is that when the king speaks, regardless, we listen, we value, we try to hear what they're trying to say. And in this idea of opposing authority, we see again in verse 4, you go back to verse 4, it says, who may say to him, what are you doing? And so in light of the fact that what the king automatically said was taken seriously, the, the question is, who in his kingdom had the power or right to question him? And in Solomon's day, the assumed answer was nobody had the right. Nobody had the right to say, what do you think you're doing? I'm going to step in uh, and stop that. Now, the king may have had advisors, and I believe he did, and they oftentimes provided perspective. They, they maybe just kind of went through, gave him different angles to consider as he was making decisions. But the point is this, once a king spoke, the matter was settled. Once a, a command or a decree or even in our society an executive order is given, the matter's settled. You can still discuss and try to give different perspective, but as long as that instruction is in place, our job is to place ourselves under it and abide by it. So again, our form of government's a little bit different, obviously, than a monarchy, um, but we still have a responsibility to, uh, to the Lord to obey and submit to the laws of the land where we reside as long as the government doesn't command us to do something unbiblical. And that's really the key, I think, in terms of uh, an exception clause. 
But here's the thing we've got to understand. We don't have the right to disobey the government just because we don't like what they're doing or we disagree with what they say or it inconveniences us. We just don't have that right as believers. And if we don't understand that, the, the problem is, is it has the, the potential negative effect of knocking us out of fellowship with the Lord and really leading us along a road of folly. And uh, so it's really, it's really something to probably not blow off and to consider at least the concepts and the truth that's being communicated in this passage for each one of us individually. Again, you know, I, I think it's, it's wise to just keep going back to verse 29. Solomon's talking about how wise people trust God. Wise people do not just blow off the civil government and do whatever they want to do. Wise people recognize that as a structure that God has put into, pre, into place. And so if they do that, a promise is given, and we see this in verse 5. He who keeps his command, speaking of the king, will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. And so again, we see this promise. And again, it's the one who pays close attention to what the king is saying. There's a promise given to that person. And the idea is that if they, if they value it, they're not going to experience anything, experience anything harmful. Now, we know there's exceptions to that. We see that through society. Bad governments sometimes punish good people or or do things, but but as a general principle, governments in our place are in place not to do those kind of things. So, in other words, the person who keeps and values the king's directives will not have evil perpetrated against them. And again, that's a general rule, not not true all of every circumstance. And so, a wise man heart, he goes on to say, discerns both time and judgment. And this word discerns is just another way of, of saying wisdom. It's the, the exact definition of wisdom because it's talking about acquiring information by experience and then possessing the ability to apply or comprehend different situations. And so, it's exactly wisdom that we're talking about. And so, Solomon says that uh, a wise man's heart discerns experientially two things. And we're going to close here this morning. What's the first thing? that a wise man can discern. Well, he can discern time. This is uh, the same word we looked at in chapter three. Remember that, that great poem um, that, used to, that was turned into a song and, I, and I've already forgotten who sang it, so I'm not even gonna try to name it, but you know that chapter. Um, and what, it, what it's teaching here is that the wise man has an understanding of the different times or different seasons of life according to God's timing. Again, they're not trapped in a temporary uh, season and just reacting as if we're going to remain in that temporary season for all time. They, they recognize that even though they might not agree with the government, the government still has the position of authority. And so we're going to yield to them. So the type of knowledge, this type of knowledge comes in handy, especially when someone does not agree with the king. This is very important because if you don't agree with the authority, a wise person still recognizes the times and the seasons, okay, in which that they're living. And so as long as the king has not done something unbiblical or asked you to do something unbiblical, again, we have a responsibility to submit. And so the wise person understands these different seasons of life. The second thing that a wise person discerns or recognizes is they have a good understanding of how to evaluate each situation and command from the king. Again, they're not overreacting. They're not just flying off the handle. They're taking this in, trying to see divine perspective of what's going on in the big picture. And so important because wise people trust in God's timing. They don't force 
timing. They trust in the Lord's timing. They trust in the Lord to avenge any kind of wrongdoing that they feel has been perpetrated against them. And so again, the wise man is not just taking justice into his own hands. Remember, Romans 12 ends that way. God will avenge you. I, don't avenge yourself. God will avenge you. And it's kind of the, the, the point, I think, here as we close out verse 5 this morning. And so, again, I, I guess if I can leave you with a comment or a thought this morning. In Solomon's wording, there's only two types of people. There's people who are wise and there's people who are fools. There's two types of people in this world. In terms of New Testament terminology and believers, we would say you're either walking by means of the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. There's nothing in between there. And the question is, are you a schemer? Are you, are you a schemer? Are you somebody that's going to go after schemes and self-defense? Are you, are you a DIY spiritual growth person? You're just going to do it yourself, find your own way to do it. Are you somebody that's gotten to the point that says, you know what, I've got nowhere else to go, Jesus. It's, it's you and me. I've got nowhere else to turn. I'm going to just trust you and walk with you hand by hand in life. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you. I, I know in many situations, this is, this is where difficulty comes in taking your word and applying it to our practical lives. And um, but Lord, that's wisdom. We, we want to be wise. We want to be people who can take your truth and assess it and apply it in these specific areas that we face in our culture and society. We want to be a, a people who respond to your word, who allow your word to, to sit in authority over us. We're not dictating to you what, what your word says, but we are taking the position of a humble learner and asking you to teach us and asking you to change our thinking where it needs to be changed and asking you to align our thinking with your word. And so this is one area, Lord, we recognize that we slip, we falter, we, we get sometimes caught up in crowds, we get pulled into things, into natural way of thinking. So we don't want to think unbiblically, Lord. We don't want to reject your scheme for one of our own self-created schemes. And so uh, grant us wisdom. And grant us just a high view of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.